This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 165. Hi, and welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I'm joined also by Jacob Paulson. Hello, Jacob. It's true. I'm here. (laughs) There you are. Thanks for having me, Riley. Hey, I'm glad to have you. Um, I'm glad you have me, too, because the voice you're hearing right now is the Riley is sick and life sucks voice. Yeah, it happens. (laughs) And so I'm going to be hitting the mute button a bunch today because uh, of coughing fits, I'm sure, that I, I'm going to try to suspe- suppress for an hour, but it uh, I, I likely will not succeed. I may be hitting another button today, too, because there's going to be all kinds of crazy stories today that it's just going to make you and I really want to swear and say things like and and that, yeah. Riley has a new button to push. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. (laughs) Anyway, uh, in keeping with uh, this family-friendly program, uh, we decided we needed to add a a sensor button. So I look forward to making good use of that since you and I, you know, drop F-bombs all the time and all. Yeah, yeah, you know us. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense. Uh, This is one of our favorite new sponsors on this program because Andrew has so many great resources to provide, uh, especially concealed carry and defensive shooting-minded individuals such as yourselves listening today. Uh, Recently, we had Andrew on the podcast, and I think it's still one of the most popular podcasts we've had on this show to date as far as, I mean, it's not that old of an episode, but boy, the downloads just keep coming in. So anyway, I hope that you'll take a chance and, and in just a moment and go and check out Andrew Brinka's Law of Self-Defense program. He's got all kinds of resources. In-person training is probably what he is best known for, and he travels across the country training people on the laws of self-defense. You can check out the upcoming courses at concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. And towards the end of the program, I'm going to share some of the upcoming dates in case you want to try to make one of those. Uh, but he also has newly released video DVDs covering various legal issues of self-defense. He has his best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense, and also online training available, including online live Law of Self-Defense courses. I hope that you, like you said, that like I said, that you'll go and check out concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. And we're thankful to him for being a sponsor of today's episode. And as is customary with Monday episodes of the podcast... We have a training tip, and this one is kind of on the back of last week's training tip, and uh, which had to deal with uh, anticipation, uh, something that uh, many shooters struggle with, I struggle with from time to time, Jacob struggles with from time to time, and guess what? It's totally okay to admit, <laughs> I think, that we sometimes struggle with anticipation. It's just something that happens. Uh the brain is an amazing thing, right? You know, it's like, hmm, I want to keep myself safe and I want to keep this thing in my hand from blowing up my hand or blowing up my face. <laughs> and so we naturally try to compensate for that little explosive device called a firearm. And so anticipation is a normal part of life of every shooter. Last week, I think we talked about uh, 
close your eyes and squeeze, <laughs> I think is what Jacob called close it. Close your eyes and squeeze, that's right. <laughs> and today I, I have a, another anticipation drill uh, called one, two, psych. <laughs> it's like one, two, psych, because meaning that you get one shot off and the second shot, there is no shot. It's a click and it psychs you out. Literally, it does, I think, for a lot of shooters. Um, also, it could be termed as a ball and dummy drill because there's there's two ways I think you could do this drill. One is to, and I like to do it this way uh, because I'm able to just sort of run through this repeatedly over and over and over again, and I don't have to sit there and load dummy ammo into my gun and then eject that dummy ammo and then have to pick it up off the ground at the range or things like that. And so a simple way of running an anticipation drill is to put a round in the chamber of your gun, remove the magazine and fire and the gun will fire and it'll cycle. And then you will have a second opportunity to press that trigger. And this should work on virtually all guns, uh, Glocks, whatever, you know, because uh, the gun will cycle. So it'll reset everything. So that second trigger press is going to be a click. Now, some of you might think, well, if I'm expecting that click to come, then it shouldn't be a problem, right? My experience has shown that most shooters, that, that anticipation is so deeply ingrained um, and is so natural that even when they know it's coming, there's still this slight downward dip and, you know, uh, that healing or whatever you want to call it as, uh, the, as they press the trigger and they get that click. And so this type of drill definitely will help you diagnose whether you have an anticipation problem or not. Um, how do we maybe fix or go about fixing anticipation problems, Jacob? Well, the, the core here is, is understanding that I, I, I must be aware of when the gun's going to go bang or I'm the one trying to force the gun to go bang, right? So as long as the shooter has in their mind at some point the acknowledgement or the awareness that it's about to fire, either because I feel the trigger about to break or because I'm pressing the trigger, jerking that trigger in such a way that I want it to go bang right now, as long as that's happening and the the brain is inclined to fight against the the bang, the recoil, then you're probably going to have anticipation problems. So there's, you have to fix one of those two issues. This is the way I see it. Either one, you have to fix the brain's need to fight the recoil. Or two, you have to fight the awareness that the gun's about to go bang. So if you're going to fight the awareness, then that means that you have to effectively um, pull the trigger in such a way that it's consistent it's this, you know. It's always the same, and you you are somehow ignoring the take up, the break, and the reset, which I don't think is very realistic. But you can talk about that in a minute. Or the alternative is to teach your brain that recoil is not bad, and we don't need to fight it. We should just let the gun kick, as Rob Latham says. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things that I do is. I've got a, a training pistol here. This is an airsoft gun uh, with a laser module installed. So uh, I don't think I have any air in it right now, but that's okay because I'm just going to be trying to get a click. And uh, when I'm trying to work on anticipation, one thing I find that helps is just simply to only focus on the trigger. Uh, mentally, all I'm and, and by focus, what I mean is like I'm repeatedly telling myself as I'm going really slow on that trigger of just smooth press, you know, just nice and easy press, press, 
WordPress. And I'm not, I, I try to take my focus away from the sites or for, from where I'm aiming or from anything else, just simply focusing on that press, 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 just nice and smooth all the way back. And so all my focus is on making that perfect trigger press and just getting used to that over and over and, over and just working through that many, many, many times. The second thing I think is uh, to, well, and actually, I, I thought maybe we would talk about this another time, but I think I'll just go ahead and introduce introduce it now. And that is to just get used to the idea of pressing the trigger when you're not looking at any sites or trying to hit any, a particular uh, target or point on a target or anything like that. So like right now, I'm just cycling, cycling this gun over and over again. I'm just sitting here pressing the trigger repeatedly. And the amazing thing is, is so often we take our sights or our eyes off the sights. And particularly if I just hold this down on my waist level, and I even find looking at my trigger finger on the trigger and just pressing that, I, I, there's no movement in the gun. I'm not concerned about an anticipation. I'm not concerned about it going bang. And this is true, I think, even with a live gun uh, for most people. Uh, there's some exceptions to be sure. But if you just kind of hold it down at a waist level and just focus on pressing that trigger repeatedly, then I, I think that works pretty well for a lot of people. The, the whole goal here is you have to get used to pressing the trigger and not trying to do anything else because that's the great challenge of shooting a gun where you want it to, where you want the bullet to impact is to hold it really still at that point and press the trigger without disturbing the gun. If you can do that, it's really not that complicated. Yeah, it shouldn't be complicated, right? And that's the funny thing is that I think beginner shooters you know, show up at the range and they line up those sights and they squeeze off the trigger and then they're like, huh, it didn't hit the bullseye. That's weird. And, and you know, it's hard to understand and believe that in those microseconds, those milliseconds, when you break that shot, you do stuff. <laughs> that yeah. stuff you're doing is bad to have the, the impact go where you want it to go. And, and anticipation is one of the biggest issues. So, yeah, I, I either have to convince my brain to ignore the feeling of the triggers that I just slowly let it surprise me every time. Or I have to convince my brain to stop fighting the recoil. Like I just have to let it go bang. And, and you know, these drills that we're talking about, these different, you know, concepts, the close your eyes and squeeze or the one, two psych or whatever, you know, all these drills we're talking about, they're all designed to help you teach the brain to stop it, to, to, to isolate uh, or remove the brain from the equation so that you can, A, recognize how powerful it is when you do that, and then, B, hopefully build that as as a muscle memory of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. That's a challenging thing, you know. I mean, and by the way, some people talk about anticipation as being a flinch because they are genuinely, cons you know, they're, the person is scared of the gun. Um, I... I don't, I mean, that may be true with some shooters, but I don't think that's always the case with shooters. So don't always think that a anticipation issue is a, is the same thing as a flinch issue that, uh, for me, it's more, I'm trying to make the gun go bang at a very specific point in time. And the compensation for that is that I, I, that I jerk it a little bit, you know, um, also skilled shooters that have, grown accustomed to a sort of uh, cadence. Um, you know, in other words, like they've shot a lot, they're familiar with shooting. And in particular, if you're shooting rapidly, 
you're trying to get your gun back on target quickly. And, and that's really my goal when I'm shooting rapidly, Jacob, is, is to hold that gun, one, super tight and trying to do everything I can to resist its ability to rotate in my hand. And part of that is that I have quite a bit of, of forward pressure on that gun in my grip. And so, uh, and sometimes a, a skilled shooter will develop a post uh, recoil anticipation or po- post shot anticipation where they're, they're, they're trying to push, you know, they recognize, okay, I'm going to go bang, bang. And at that moment, they're trying to also push forward slightly to minimize that recoil, uh, and, and thus muzzle rise so they can get back on target quickly. And if that timing is misjudged, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that timing with, with doing that sort of thing. Uh, but if the timing is off, if you're a little bit early, then it will also reflect similarly to like a, a flinch, a pre-shot flinch or an anticipation. Anyway, some things to think about and be aware of and uh, some hopefully tools, including with last week's training tip, that you can both either diagnose your anticipation issues and then also find some ways to, uh, and by the way, I think being aware of it is helpful in trying to avoid it. And so some of these, while they may be more like a diagnosis, I think they can also, by making us aware, help us not do them. And almost every time I go to the range for my my personal practice, I do this one-two psych uh, drill just because I'm, I'm constantly trying to stay on top of that anticipation issue. So... Yeah, and I, I found for me that the more I work on it, the, the the closer I get at being able to manage this issue, the faster I shoot. In other words, today, if I'm shooting relative at a relatively slow cadence, I can manage this really well. Like, I'm really good at not anticipating the recoil. But if I start to speed up my cadence at all, it's like those old habits, so to speak, you know, manifest themselves. So the more I work on this, the, the kind of the further I am able to push the correct skill, it, 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 you know, relative to the speed at which I shoot. One more dry fire practice there as you were talking. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think that's something that comes with time, with time and repetitions and, and thousands of rounds fired. <laughs> that speed will come for sure. Today's uh, episode is also brought to you, by the way, by Guardian Nation and Sports Afield. We hope you'll check those sponsors out as well and give them some, some support. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm suppressing a cough right now. <laughs> and, All right, well, uh, should we? Well, you want me to get get this this ball on the road, Riley? Let's do it. I'm I can talk it. a little bit more this time, you know. Let Riley drink some water and not choke as much on himself. Okay, so our first story. This is our lead. This is our our opening story, and this is one that uh, you know a member of our team shared on I think Thursday or Friday or whenever it was. We saw it, and I remember like I saw this and I thought. Riley's going to feel justified because every single time I teach a class with you, Riley, you always make a very big point to emphasize this very rule. And so here's the story. Headline reads, and this is from the dailymail.co.uk, volunteer firefighter and father of four, 28 years old, shot himself dead when he dropped his gun while calming his crying infant son. And the lead is a little bit buried here because from reading this headline, it infers that this gun fell on the ground. And when it hit the ground, it discharged and hit the guy. That's not what happened. Yeah, uh, it's not that at all. And and this story is incredibly tragic. I mean, it pulls at my heart because, I mean, I've been there. Uh, he's got a little infant uh, child in the in a back seat, in a car seat. 
and uh, that child is upset. And so he's in the process of trying to just take care of. He's, he's being a good dad. Like, that's the sad thing here. Uh, he's a volunteer firefighter. Um, he seems to be a well-liked individual and respected in his community. And he's just being a dad. And in that process, uh, he ends up getting himself shot. And like you said, it wasn't from the gun falling and hitting the ground and thus discharging. It was actually as he was trying to catch the falling weapon. Now, you should know it was a three fifty seven Magnum revolver carried in a shoulder holster, which, by the way, this is a great point to bring up. And we don't we rarely talk about shoulder holsters. We're not particular uh fans necessarily i mean you you and i don't carry in shoulder holsters i don't ever. say that we're not fans it's just that it's not practical for either of our lifestyles i i don't well yeah no, I i'm not you. an unfan like i'm totally cool if anybody wants to go wear like it's all good i, it, I yeah i'm not i'm not a fan <laughs> i'm not a big Sorry. fan of cross draw and so if i have an issue with shoulder holsters it's just that it's a cross draw system but outside of that i have no other beef with you know, a shoulder rig. And I'm sorry to those out there that are fans, you know, nothing against you. I just, I am not a personal fan. Uh, I think there's far faster and more effective ways to carry. But anyway, shoulder holster, if it does not function properly, meaning if it does not have good retention, bending over forward is the time it is going to fall out because they all work very similarly in that they either rock their way in or out of the holster uh, where they're kind of oriented a little bit more vertically, or they go into a holster more straight and back, but they're, they're you know they're kind of pointing at a slightly downward angle towards your you know to, towards your rear. Either way, when you bend forward, that's the time. If if a gun's going to fall out of one, that's when it's going to fall out. And it's clear that either his retention uh, was not functioning properly, uh, the gun wasn't fit properly for the holster, or whatever. Something went wrong, and the gun fell out of the holster. He tries to grab it, and in that process, he he gets a hold of it, you know, you know, in the wrong way. And pulls the trigger as it happens to be pointing at his gut. It hit him somewhere in the abdomen. Um, you know, in today's medical world, many times wounds in the abdomen are survivable and can be fixed. But in this case, he he underwent emergency surgery, but they could not they could not save him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tragic. So, what's the the main takeaways here? You, you mentioned one. You know, holster retention, shoulder rigor. Otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, good shoulder. You know, good holster retention is important. And the other main takeaway here is anytime a gun is falling, let it fall. Let it fall. And we, you know, this, this is important all the time. It doesn't, it, you know, think how instinctive it is to try and catch things when they're falling. It is very deeply ingrained. And so it takes a lot of conscious effort and pre-thinking, uh, you know, mental rehearsal, so to speak, to convince yourself to let that thing hit the ground. Yeah. It, it is counterintuitive, I think, to probably for some people, they think, well, that's scary that my gun would fall and hit the ground. But the odds are, or the chances are greater, that you would do what happened here and grab it in in a wrong way. Meaning, like, you know, normally you'd think, oh, I'm going to try to grab that grip, just like I handle the gun. But, you don't, you know, that gun's falling some weird way, and you just happen to grab it by the slide, and your index finger slips into the trigger guard. You know, and you, and you don't, you're not trying to do that, but it just happens because it's a falling object and you're, you're fumbling and you're bumbling and the trigger is pressed and the shot is fired. Uh, so the, the odds of it firing when it hits the ground are very low yeah, in so, today's modern, so 
yeah, I mean, almost all handguns these days, even the revolvers, uh, many of them have, uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, I'm having a brain fart. <laughs> Is that drop safety? Is that the best term? Well, well, so, I mean, for instance, a lot of these revolvers nowadays have a, have a little uh, uh, bar inside there that transfers energy, transfer bar. Yeah, I think that's what it's called, transfer bar safety or something like that. Anyway, where the hammer slaps it, and it then pushes that energy through into the firing pin. But if you don't have like good, um, if, if you don't actually hold the trigger all the way back as that hammer is falling forward, or if the hammer falls forward on its own, that bar is not there. So in other words, your finger holding the trigger back is what holds the bar in place. The hammer hits it, it hits the firing pin, the gun fires. Okay, chances are, I mean, it could be wrong, but chances are his revolver had a safety similar to that. And there's, uh, yeah, so it's still less likely, regardless, though, even still with an old school revolver, that his revolver would discharge hitting the ground than him trying to grab it and pulling the trigger mistakenly. So that's unfortunate. I mentioned, by the way, the, spe- the specifics about retention in the holster because this is one potential downside of shoulder holsters because of the angle that the holster works or the gun, the way the gun is held. As opposed to most of us carrying guns on our hips, gravity is going to help more or less uh, because the gun is oriented up and down. That's that's why I brought that up in case uh, you were wondering. But Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think still think the retention is equally it's important. A, oh, all it's always important. It's always important. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that this, this is a great opportunity to look at a specific piece of a holster that that rarely is talked about. Sure. Yeah, valid. Anyway. All right, next one, Riley. You ready? Yep. BigLeaguePolitics.com. Never heard of this website. <laughs> Sounds like so, big news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So the title or the headline of the article is Paul Ryan Challenger Bump Fires Rifle Without Bump Stock asks, quote, will Congress outlaw fingers? Question mark, end quote. So here's the this short. This is a great one. Yeah, the short story here, is, for those who are just now learning about bump stocks and bump firing, uh, you know, the bump stock is designed to essentially um, assist your trigger to operate the trigger, assist your finger in operating the trigger very quickly, just purely off the motion of the recoil. How is that for a description? So the, the thing though, the, the thing is, as my kids would say, they say that all the time. The thing is, dad, the thing is that even without that bump stock, a person can create that motion or that effect uh, by just, you know, creating the right amount of tension uh, with the gun against the body and and having the finger, you know, in, in the in the correct place and and you know, you know flexible enough to to operate accordingly, uh, basically holding it holding it to the rear ish, but allowing the recoil to cycle it. So this video, uh, which is done by some guy who I think is trying to be elected to some local office somewhere. He's, right. He is a direct, he's, he's challenging Paul Ryan. That's it. There it is. Neelan, N-E-H-L-E-N, Neelan for Congress. So this guy's basically calling out Paul Ryan say, hey, you know, are you going to outlaw fingers too? Because I don't need a bump stock to bump fire. And as far as I'm concerned, like anytime a politician like throws a video online of them shooting and they do it like correctly, I'm really inclined to vote for them. I, I, I know that's super naive and bad of me, but you're definitely getting my attention. So Paul Nealon, this guy does a great video where he just demonstrates like, hey, check it out. This rifle has no bump stock. Watch this. And he, boom, just bump fires it really effectively. And his point is not, hey, anybody can do it. Anybody can, you know, can go shoot lots of people in Vegas. I think his point is, hey, 
outlawing this tool just doesn't really have any effect at all because anyone can bump fire a gun. It doesn't take much. Yeah. I love this politician's uh, tact in this regard because he's taking something that obviously is a big issue in our country right now. It's it's all the rage. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone supposedly wants to outlaw bump stocks. And here he is you know, challenging Paul Ryan for a House seat in Wisconsin. And Paul Ryan, of course, is the House Speaker currently. Um, but he's challenging him, and he's challenging him directly on this sensitive issue and an issue that Paul Ryan has come out and said, "Yeah, we should, we need, you know, we, we should probably basically outlaw bump stocks." I mean, that's basically what Paul Ryan has said. Uh, and and so he makes a video saying, "Look, vote for me. Uh, you want to outlaw bump stocks? That's bullcrap. Watch this." Bump fires his gun using the tradition, what I call the traditional technique, the technique we've been using since I was like a little kid. Forever. Yeah. You know, you're like, I mean, all it is is your finger is staying stationary, but the gun's recoiling, so it keeps bouncing against your finger, and thus it fires. I mean, it's it, it, it's not complicated. It, 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 his point is a valid point. What are we going to do? Outlaw fingers? But actually, as you're going to see here in a moment, because we have a story that we'll uh, touch on this a little bit. Um, Really, what we what we truly know is that they don't just want to outlaw bump stocks. You know that the anti-gunners' real desire is to, besides outlaw all guns, well, a step in that direction will be to also outlaw semi-automatics. And semi-automatics allow for bump firing to take place. Period. And so that's why... <laughs> I know some, we had the one guy comment, in, you know, a couple of episodes ago, uh, reviewed the podcast saying, you know, you guys are ridiculous. You know, your take on bump stocks. And Riley said, you know, I don't really care whether a bump stock was outlawed or not. I don't from a product standpoint, but I do because of this standpoint. And this was the very point I made in that episode. I, I'm absolutely for bump stocks on principle. Yeah, you know, whether all these politicians and voters know it or not, what they're really asking for is gun confiscation. And I've said this many times, and I won't get on my high horse again. I'll just quickly summarize and say, make this point that all these proposals that exist, if passed, won't make any difference. And so they'll have to keep on grabbing until the guns are taken away. And some of you are saying, well, Jacob, but even then, even if all the guns are taken away, it still won't solve the problem. I agree that it wouldn't fully, but I'm also not so naive as to believe that if guns were illegal in the United States, that gun crime wouldn't you know, drop. It would. It would drop some. Um, there's just no question about it. It doesn't mean violent crime would drop. It doesn't mean that there would never, no longer be gun-related crime. It just, you know, ultimately, yeah, if all guns are made illegal, gun crime will drop some. It's, it, that doesn't mean I'm for it. <laughs> not not it's, even it's, close. It's, yeah. <laughs> and and could true. we answer the question, and could we answer the question how much it would drop by? No, not even oh, close. No, I mean, more importantly, it leaves me defenseless, which is why I'm against it. But, but the point is that all of these proposals, whether it's outlawing bump stacks or limiting magazine capacity or universal background checks or any of this crap, BS, stupid legislation that, that is considered so common sense, it, none of it will change anything. Which ultimately, which we'll talk about that more today. Which ultimately means that they'll continue to have to regulate guns, and they'll have to do that until they are illegal. That only then would they have any effect whatsoever. So whether they know it or not, that's what they're asking for. They're asking for confiscation. And this Paul Nealon 
House representative candidate in Wisconsin. He gets that point, and we applaud him for it. I have no idea what his other political views are, and I don't care. Uh, but <laughs> but he gets that part, at least, I think. On to an article uh, from our friends at guns.com. House Dems propose bills to stop online ammo sales, ban mags. Uh, here's several proposals from House Democrats. House Resolution 3962, which would ban online ammunition sales. Uh, That would suck. (laughs) Uh, House Resolution 4025 would require gun dealers to report the sale of two or more rifles to the same person in a five-day period. I love laws like this because, you know, it's not like Mr. Stephen Paddock, who probably planned this over a period of years, it's not like he couldn't have just been patient. <laughs> Waited five days to buy the next one. Right. Oh, my gosh. And then House Resolution 4052, which would ban magazines able to hold greater than 10 rounds. Well, I'll tell you another thing. Sorry, Riley. Just throw this out there. Later this week, I'm going to go down to a gun store and pick up two guns. Uh, one of them's already there. The other one is, is being shipped. So I'm waiting for it to arrive. When it gets there, I will go down and I will pick up both those guns at the same time. Saves me a trip, one background check, etc. Now, in Colorado, as you know very well, Riley, what will happen if I buy two guns at the same time? Do you buy two guns at the same time in Colorado? Yeah. They have to report it to the county sheriff's office. I What? That's true. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, they don't have to tell you they're doing it, but it is true. In Colorado, at least with handguns, I, I don't know, actually, if it's true with rifles. I don't buy multiple rifles at the same time, I guess. But if you buy two handguns at the same time in Colorado, by law, the FFL is required to notify the county sheriff's office. I don't know if they have to notify the one they're they're located in or the one I'm located in. But anyway, it's true. And I've had many dealers who just straight up tell me like, are you sure you want to buy two today? Because I have to notify the county sheriff's office. And I'm like, what? I've never heard this. Yeah, this is fact, dude. And I've never had a dealer say, do you sure you want to buy two guns a day? They're always like, yippee, I'm selling two or three or five or 10 guns. <laughs> maybe because you have a badge, you're special. But us non, maybe us non-badge prob- people have this issue. Anyway, here's the point. How many times have I done this in Colorado? At least 10. <laughs> At least 10 times I've bought two guns, I bet you. And you know what I say if they, if they warn me, if they're like, hey, I got to know, you know what I say? Go for it. <laughs> Okay, so what? Like, I couldn't care less. So the sher- what's the sheriff going to do? Come show up at my house and be like, why did you buy two guns yesterday? <laughs> because I like guns, you know? What do you want from me? Like, what difference would it make? I, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I had to throw that out there. Do do I care? Yeah, I care because I, I think it's stupid. Uh, and I, I know some people will be like, it's a violation of my rights. Yeah, okay, but it's just stupid because you know what happens with crap like that? I know darn well that county that that county sheriff's office is getting these reports or what however that works. I'm just, dude, you just like blew my mind open today. I've never heard of this crap before, at least in our state here. I mean, there's lots of other crap we have to deal with, but not I didn't know about that. But I mean, you know darn well those reports come in and like it gets to a point like they just are going to ignore it. Like <laughs> Like, uh, there's no way you're collecting all that data and actually doing something with it on something as simple as purchasing two guns because it's so prevalent. Yeah, just does, it's 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 crazy. It's ridiculous. Anyway, so yeah, I had to throw that out there. So, but the, but to me, even more ridiculous than that is banning online ammunition sales. What does that achieve? I'm, I'm well, it would have stopped James Holmes. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> No, I wouldn't. Like it's so, it's so unbelievable. Like because I can't buy ammo online, that somehow does what? I, I just go 
I, I just go buy it offline then. Like, I don't, I don't, I, know. I don't understand. You know, you know, what's easier, Jacob, you know, what's easier is I can go down to 5280 armory here in Denver area and buy thousands of rounds directly and have it the same day, same day, same day. Wow. Yeah. What a in, in fact, it's almost like these two concepts are in like direct, like opposite of each other. Like at least if I buy ammo online, I have like a waiting period to get it. It's called shipping. Um, anyway, and then, and then the idea of banning magazines able to hold greater than 10 rounds, you know, they, they tried that in 1994 that, you know, that was passed and it lasted 10 years in 2004. It was not renewed. And by many accounts, depending on who you ask that they think that's why the Democrats lost the white house in 2004. So anyway, um, I don't know what I have to say about this. There you go. All right. Now we've said it. Should we move on? Hold the line, folks, because laws like this are no good. Mind-blowing. Okay, next story. Uh, I would say it's similar. It's similar in that it obviously there's a lot of uh, public sentiment, whether you're talking from a political angle, media angle, or the public in general. But this story from thehill.com, tagline is, support for stricter gun laws hits all-time high in poll. This was according to a Quinnipiac University poll, which, you know what, whether it's Quinnipiac or Rasmussen or even Gallup, like all of these pollsters, did you see how wrong they were about Trump winning the election? And we, you know, but yet the media reports on this crap, like this really, you know, this, this is the sentiment of the country right now. After they talked to a whopping, I don't know, 1400 people on the phone and say, do you support stricter gun laws? You know, what I find interesting, Jacob, is that I'm sure there's some something somewhere that would back this up. And I, I say this because I worked in a survey center when I was in high school. You know, I needed one of those little part-time jobs, and I placed calls, and I called people and asked them questions, and about 99 out of 100 were like, no, thank you, click. And you know what I know from that experience and I'm sure there's some research somewhere that could back this up, is that conservative Americans, by, by conservative, I'm, I'm talking primarily gun-toting, freedom-believing Americans are less likely to respond to polls like this. And so I think, I, right off the bat, I think this kind of stuff is skewed to begin with. Just like our poll you know, of podcast listeners would be, and, and, and is, we did a poll not too long ago, and I don't remember all the questions we asked, but I would say it's extremely biased in terms of that 99.9% of them are pro-gun Americans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and in this case, let's see here, this survey, 1,482 self-identified registered voters, 29% Republican, 32% Democrat, 34% Independent, and 7 that they don't know what they are or don't care, I guess, or they're other. See, and even in that, they, they, they give you the impression that this is fairly even, you know, like right. we have even representation of Republicans, Democrats, and then there's all these others in the middle. Well, that middle is the critical piece. Either way, it's not a lot of people. But no, it's let's not. continue. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm just, te- I'm having fun tearing this apart because I don't, I don't believe or trust polls like this. I mean, for instance, I can pull up a Gallup poll from not too long ago that would suggest Something pretty much the opposite. In fact, I had that pulled up recently, and I think I closed that tab, and I will share that in a link somewhere uh, in our show notes. But uh, so they would say that the majority of people, uh, 73%, support 
banning devices that allow gun owners to modify semi-automatic rifles to mimic fully automatic weapons. So in other words, 73% would would support banning bump stocks. But if you recall, see, now this is where it gets really dangerous, right? Because you have a poll that would suggest that legislation that has been proposed, which is that bill, what is it, HR 3999 or something like that. That's the that's the bump stock bill that but the way it's worded could so easily be skewed and likely would be to limit all sorts of devices, including aftermarket triggers, which, I mean, how common is that? I mean, hunters on their hunting rifles do aftermarket triggers to make them shoot better because we're trying to be more accurate and things like that all the time. Um, In an AR, you might do an aftermarket trigger to shoot more accurately, but also to be able to shoot a little bit faster. And we're we're not talking fully automatic speeds, but I can see that language being skewed to show that. And so here's the danger. We have a bill that says, and it's not the bump stock bill, even though that's how we would refer to it. It's let's ban anything that increases the rate of fire in, in uh, semi-automatic firearms. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and by the way, here's public sentiment. Here's a poll that would suggest that people are on board with this. And so what are our politicians in D.C. thinking? Well, this is what the people want. Thus, we got to get we got to push this through, and they push this through things anyway that people don't want to begin with. But that this is really dangerous ground we're on because this bill could—I doubt it will actually—and I doubt, I kind of doubt Trump would actually sign it. But, uh, but it's dangerous ground we're on. It is, and you, you summarize it really well. You know, it's it's one thing for me to say. A, you know, who would who would support a bill that helps, you know, save puppies? And, you know, oh, 99% of people would support a bill that saves puppies. And then I, I go and I propose some legislation that says, hey, I want to save puppies. And to do that, we're going to kill cats. And and this this poll I ran, you know, shows that people support this. <laughs> you know? yep. And so I, I, that's a bit of an exaggeration, perhaps, but it, it hopefully paints the picture. By the way, it doesn't really matter, I think, because this poll was was conducted shortly after Las Vegas happened. And you, every time we have a major incident like this, uh, this was shown even after Sandy Hook, where polls are, you know, people do a poll and they see, oh, wow, people are in favor of more gun control. But it's right after this terrible gut-wrenching event took place where people are emotional and people don't always make rational choices decisions including including poll responses when they are emotional in fact we rarely make good decisions when we're emotional you of all people jacob know that because that's pretty much how you live your life you're always like you know what let's look at the logic here let's look at the numbers let's look at the data and okay this is what the this is the conclusion we draw from that and that's how decisions should be made and that's why it's so dangerous and that's why this poll doesn't matter because what we found after Sandy Hook and after Orlando the uh the Pulse nightclub shooting is that initially there's a uptick in these pro gun control responses and then it settles down. Well, I thank you Riley for calling me so smart and saying I make decisions the way they should be made. That's very kind of you. But here's, I think it's not just about like the emotion of the thing maybe changes my opinion. It's also about ignorance. I think right now it's really easy for a lot of Americans to say, yeah, these bump stocks are horrible. But the more Americans learn about it, and like this video from the guy showing just bump fire with, without a bump stock, the more people learn and the more they become educated, that also changes their, their opinion. So it's really easy yeah. to get a lot of people to get behind something when they don't know anything about it. Uh, and, and then as they become more educated, that also changes things. 
it's really important that we actually focus, I think now more than anything, uh, less so on emotion because there's emotions on both sides. I mean, we see it in comments all the time on articles and, you know, on the pro gun side where guys and gals get so emotional because they're so offended that anyone would think of doing something like banning their second amendment right or a piece of that. And I get it, but it's more important that we focus on education, which is one of our, if it's not the most important goal, it is right up there at the top is one of our most important goals. This podcast is education, which is why we even brought this story to you. Cause I, I hate actually acknowledging the fact that a poll shows that more Americans want gun control. I just I don't believe it, so I pointed that out. And also, we educate you, and 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 surely our listeners know that bump stock, uh, this bill is stupid. Uh, it wouldn't solve anything. It wouldn't prevent Las Vegas from happening. And so, let's focus more on educating those in our circle of influence, um, as opposed to making emotional arguments. Next story from theguardian.com. dot mm-hmm. I love this story because once again, I think this shows. I think it counters a lot of what we, what we've just talked about. Uh, and in fact, if you read that last article in the Hill about uh, the, the the poll, they also asked in that poll uh, what support was for background checks in gun purchases, and it was like ninety four percent. Well, you know what? That's not that surprising to me because. I'm even supportive of. I mean, oh dear, I'm going to get some hate mail on this. I'm Careful sure somebody there would be like. Somebody's going to be like, I can't believe, Riley, that you are okay with infringement on my Second Amendment because you're okay with background checks at a gun dealer. Well, guess what? You know what? I actually am personally okay with background checks at a you know officially licensed gun dealer because I think that's probably not a bad idea. Because otherwise, the gangbangers could also just walk in there if there was no background check and buy guns freely, just like I could. I would rather they still have to find them somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I know I'm going to get hate mail on that. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, I disagree but... with you, frankly. Like In case you're curious, um, you and I are, not, are on, at odds on that one. I, I am against background checks in all formats, and I have a pretty lengthy article I wrote about why, but... Let's get into this, and then we'll throw out some more yeah. opinion. So the, the here's what the deal is. The article from The Guardian says, the headline, gun laws that cost millions had little effect because they weren't enforced. This is a bullcrap headline. I'll tell you why here in a minute. Okay, so here's this, the rough story. Some researchers do a bunch of research, and they're looking specifically at the state of Colorado and the state of Washington. These are two states where not too long ago, laws were passed that eliminated private transactions without background checks. So essentially what we would consider a universal background check law that requires that any transfer of a gun with very few exceptions like family members requires a background check, whether it's a private sale, a gift, or a dealer sale. So these laws were passed and these researchers looked at those to say, okay, now that those have been in play for a while, are you know, have, have they had their desired effect or not? And ultimately the research said, no, they haven't. Now here is where we have to start paying attention. Because there's two things that then come into play here that I call BS on. The first one is this. How are they determining, how are they measuring if background check laws, quote unquote, work or not? Well, here's the funny part. If you read through this, the the suggestion is that they're determining whether or not they work based on whether or not there are more less or the same number of background checks taking place on an annual basis. The inference is this, that if previously 
you know, there were a hundred thousand people buying a gun in Colorado each year, and not you know sixty percent of them did it at a gun dealer, and forty percent did of that did it privately, which is BS. But that's a separate topic. Then. Now that we've passed this law, we should see a significant increase in the number of background checks being run because these 40% of people that were buying them privately, they now have to get background checks uh, too. So the, the number should rise. To me, that's a pretty incomprehensive way to measure whether or not a law works purely based on whether or not the number of background checks run has increased, decreased, or stayed the same. Here's a couple of reasons why. One is that, that, that theory, that way of measuring this is dependent on another concept that I believe is false. And that concept is that a large number of transactions were being done privately and didn't have background checks. And therefore, if, if it was a large number before that didn't have a background check, now that they have to have a background check, we'd see a, a pretty large increase. But I think that's bullcrap to begin with. In fact, there's a lot of research that's been done that suggests that it's probably less than 10% of transactions uh, that are private sales and don't require a background check. 90% plus probably do, despite you know the rhetoric from you know Clinton and Obama over the last several years of 40% or more you know are private sales. That that's just not true. And because that's not true, the premise on which they're measuring if the law had an effect or not is also not true. But I'm just getting warmed up, Riley. Can I keep going or? You got to cut in now. No, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm just getting started. That's the first bull crap. Here's the second bull crap. If you believe that there's a large number of people who are buying guns privately, and therefore by having this law in place, all those people would would have to pass a background check now, and therefore you would believe that if the law is working, a high there'd be a much higher number of them, and that's how to measure it. Then you're probably also inclined to believe because your premise is wrong. When you look at the data, you're going to have to infer what? Well, if the number hasn't gone up, that must mean that people are not following the law. People are not being compliant. They are choosing to have transactions without the background check and they are breaking the law. That would be the only way to explain your findings based on your false premise. And that's exactly what they've done here. That's why the headline is crap. The headline says, gun laws that cost millions had little effect because they weren't enforced. That's an inference. They didn't measure that in the study. They don't know whether or not they were enforced or not. They're inferring that people are choosing not to be compliant because the number of background checks did not go up. And that's an assumption based on the theory that a high number of transactions would were previously performed without background checks that now would require a background check. And so if your premise is wrong, all of this is bullcrap. And if I, here's a paragraph, here's this, this is what I love. More than three years later, researchers have concluded that the new laws had little measurable measurable effect, comma, here's the best word, probably because citizens simply decided not to comply and there was a lack of enforcement by authorities. Probably. (laughs) I love it. So anyway, the premise is wrong. Therefore, your data is irrelevant because the way you're measuring the information is wrong. And because you've come up with an, with, with a, with a data output that you can't explain away any other way, you are assuming that us citizens are just non-compliant and doing things illegally. And that's crap. But I know that's, that's not, thank you. You missed, barely missed the crap, but <laughs> I, I know that's not your favorite thing about this article. So I'll, I'll get off my horse now. No, I, I, I think those are great points. And I, actually really do like that aspect of it uh you you really break it down and tear the sucker apart 
Um, but w- what you brought up, Jacob, is the reason why someone like Sarah Toft, research director at Every Town for Gun Safety, uh, a Michael Bloomberg funded organization, uh, that's what allows her to now look at this and say the research also shows how critical implementation and enforcement are, and it suggests. Colorado and Washington still have gaps in those areas that can and should be addressed. Uh, and, and so we know that's that's a bunch of bull. Um, so here's the thing, though. With laws like this, and this was a major, you know, almost every single one of Colorado's county sheriffs, when this law was passed back in 2013 in Colorado, uh, almost every one of the county sheriffs was in opposition to it, and one of the big arguments that the sheriffs themselves made was we cannot enforce this. We cannot enforce. And they were referring to every aspect of the law because the laws that were passed in, in back uh, four plus years ago were universal background checks in Colorado. And they said, we can't enforce that high capacity magazines. We can't enforce that. Right. And, you know, so <laughs> that's that's a problem in of itself. And I'm sure every town for gun safety would look at it and be like, well, there's got to be something we could do to enforce it. But the problem is, is you can't. So, I mean, because how do you do that? How do you keep me from giving you a gun, Jacob? Yeah, not only can you not enforce it, but you're assuming that by enforcing it, you'd have some change on the outcome, which I call BS on. You're, you're I, assuming that yeah. all of us law-abiding gun owners are now like sitting here in our parking lot saying, I, you know, bull crap, I'm not going to follow this law. I'm just going to sell my gun anyway. No, we're law-abiding citizens. When I sell a gun, Riley's about to sell me a gun as soon as he put, it changes out the front sight. So when Riley sells me that gun, what are, what are we going to do, Riley? We're going to go down to a dealer. I'm going to pay the $6 fee to the state of Colorado, and we'll do the exchange. It's fine. Like It's not the end of the world. We're not non-compliant because we're law-abiding citizens. Like I'm insulted that all of these organizations are basically saying that we just ignore the law and proceed to do things illegally because, you know, because. Like, bull crap. Yeah. I agree with that too because we do – I mean, do do I think there's a handful of people in our state that has illegally made transfers? Yeah, I'm sure it's happened. Uh, and, that you know, they probably don't have a personal problem with that. Um, me personally, I try to obey the law. I, I, I feel like that's what separates me from the thugs on the street. And so, yes, you're right. We are going to go through the proper channels to make it happen. Here's what I think happened after these laws were passed. I think uh, people stopped buying firearms privately. They just stopped. Uh, I mean, I know I did because, I mean, what did it mean? It meant a lot more effort and trouble and time and an increased cost because it's not just the 6 or $7 background check fee that we have to now pay for that. It's also, the transfer fee that almost every dealer tax on, which can range anywhere from 20 to $40. And so, you know, what I think happened for probably a lot of people is they would go to a deal. And some dealers, by the way, some dealers have used guns in the cases and those are sold on consignment. That's another way that people have legally complied with this law. They go to a dealer and say, I'm willing to give you 20% on the sale of this gun so you can sell sell it for me. And what happens is, well, one, people are less likely to want to do that because they're not getting the full value for their gun. And so there's less of that 
that will take place than, than otherwise would, perhaps. Um, but two, um, people will walk in and go, well, I can buy this gun used for $260, or I can buy the same gun over here for 300 brand new, right? And there's no transfer fee. And so, in other words, like all these numbers are, are screwed up. But here's my favorite part of the article because it actually gets the one of the, the, the main guy behind this study. He actually admits some things that I, I'm just surprised that he admits, admits. He says, these aren't the results I hoped to see. <laughs> in other words, here, wow, we have somebody conducting a study, a supposed research study that aren't we supposed to try to be unbiased <laughs> when we do these studies? And instead he actually says, I hope to see something else. In other words, I hoped to see crimes or whatever it was go down because of universal, universal background checks. But I didn't see what I hoped to see. He admits that. And then he says, I hoped to see an effect. Here's the second thing that he admits that blows me away, but it's much more important to see what's actually happened. And I applaud him for his desire, his integrity to want to actually understand what the effect of, if there was or wasn't an effect or whatever, about these universal background check laws that were passed. But here's the other thing that astounds me about that is he thinks that his other that the conclusions that came from the study are accurate or correct or that the reasons behind it, you know, the lack of enforcement or uh, people breaking the law or whatever it was, like he says he wants to see what actually happened, but then they assume that these other things actually happened that likely didn't happen or, or they're making a big assumption that that's what happened. And so that also, I think, is kind of, it makes me chuckle a little bit because he, 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 he says he wants to know what happened, but he's, I guess, too dumb to realize that the way they approached the study can't possibly show what actually happened. So, wow. Okay, we beat that sucker to pieces. <laughs> Andrew Breaker would be proud. <laughs> I hope. I'm sure he would have some more points to add to the conversation. Um, but but here's the thing. It, what do we take from this? We take from this that, this is what I personally believe, most pro-gun control measures that are proposed by the other side likely have no effect to little effect on what they claim they're trying to to do, to have an, uh, an effect on. And that's true even here where our next story from eaglerising.com, once again, a new, new website for us today, uh, but I like this story. It says, Feinstein says she represents 40 million Californians and they don't want concealed carry. Uh, I, <laughs> I chuckle at this because, uh, well, one, it's Diane Feinstein. Enough said. <laughs> She's said enough things through the years about gun control that uh, just don't don't make any sense at all, right? Um, but... Uh, but she she says that she represents 40 million Californians and that 40 million Californians don't want concealed carry. And that's a bunch of BS because we know there's a lot of people in California that want concealed carry. And here's the thing, a little known fact about our podcast, what's the number one listening state to the, to the concealed carry podcast, Jacob? California. <laughs> 
So, I mean, if you just assume that all the, you know, all the population across the U.S. is equal demographically, in other words, that that you know the demographics are proportionally the same whether you're in California or Texas or New York or Idaho. If we just assume that, which would be a terrible assumption, by the way, uh, <laughs> you know, then 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 that total. I mean, like, <laughs> well, okay, actually, I said that wrong. If we assume Californians as as liberal as it is, which it is pretty bad, uh, and I said liberal, I'm sorry, Jacob. <laughs> but but it, I mean, politically, it is right. Um, if we assume it is that way, then you would think that there would be a smaller percentage or proportion of podcast listeners to the Concealed Carry podcast that live in California. Here's a fun one for you. Trying, How many? Yeah. Do you know what the population of California is. I actually don't know. So she says she represents 40 I don't think it's million, 40 million Californians. So there are only 37 million people in California. Do you know what percentage of them are adults? Hey, hey hold on now. But I, I learned in school way back when that you can round up. You know, <laughs> if the number is five or greater, then you, you can round up to... <laughs> <laughs> if it's six or greater. So yeah, it's apparently 37 million is 40 million. And she's including children. <laughs> because the adult population... In California, is roughly twenty-seven million. So there are only well, we twenty-seven have to, million adults in the whole state. Well, we have to assume, you know, the children are anti-concealed carry because they can't they can't do it. <laughs> so anyway, if every single adult in California was anti-concealed carry, that would be twenty-seven <laughs> million. Uh, okay, <clears throat> yeah. Just either way, I mean, hello, Diane Feinstein. Like that's a lot of people here, and they do not want concealed carry. And we know that to be false. We have instructors there. Um, they have people come through concealed carry courses. There are a few counties in, in California that are more um, open to the idea of concealed carry and have easier uh, requirements. And the, the sheriffs – and actually, that's the thing. In California, it's up to all the individual sheriffs. Uh, they have the discretion to issue permits or not. And in some counties, it's basically a a – shall not issue a policy in others it's a may issue and there's a few that are pretty close to a shall issue uh it really depends on the county you're in and we know there's many many i would dare say i mean i would say for sure thousands but there's potentially millions that are pro-gun folk that uh they just are on the losing end of, of the battle because they're, they're frankly they're outnumbered in that state yeah <laughs> Pretty mind-blowing. Here's her quote, just in case people are wondering exactly what she said. Quote, My opinion of that bill is terrible. We want every American to feel comfortable packing a concealed weapon, question mark, around the country, question mark. I represent 40 million Californians, and I can say without hesitation, Californians do not want concealed carry, end quote. Yeah. A later quote is, I am saying that the state I represent would not want any part of that. Now, that's probably true as far as the state politics are concerned. Nor should any American... That's bullcrap. You sh- you just make the situation worse. You let somebody with a weapon who may do you harm get close to you. Why would you want that? Well, I present to you Exhibit A, our first story in our justified segment today. Oh, hold on, motorist. Right, I just found. I was, I was oh, googling. Okay. I found a relevant number here. I'm sorry. How many okay. active permits are there in California? Ooh. Um. I have the number. I'm going to go with 150,000. Of from from the following counties: Fresno, Kern, Shasta, Sacramento, Tular, San Bernardino, and Orange County. So those are six, seven counties that do 
just roughly issue permits if you you know qualify. There's seventy thousand permits between those. Now that that gives you an idea, just number of people who've already have a permit. Here's another fun one though. There are sixteen thousand Californians who have a pending application in that they that, yeah, that they're just waiting for something to be approved. That's just in in uh, in San Francisco. So anyway, to say that every single California adult doesn't want a permit would ignore the seventy thousand that already have one, just in these seven counties. The sixteen thousand in San Francisco alone that have an application pending. Um, what the pending for probably eternity yeah, they'll never get in a place like San France. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I'm sure to Diane Feinstein, that's pretty insignificant, but, um, but the fact is there are Californians that believe in and are exercising concealed carry. Um, and I believe there would be many more that would because, because they're in, you know, there's many counties where you can't get permits. And, and I mean, so I think the, the ones you mentioned, I mean, is what, like, 10% of all counties in California, like as far as number of counties, it's a small, it's a maybe small not number. Even, even just in terms of population, I mean, that's really small number because you're excluding San Diego County, you're excluding Los Angeles County, you're excluding yep. the entire Bay Area. Those, those are the biggest population yep. centers. And none of Can you imagine if LA County had a shall issue uh, uh, policy in place? There would probably be 100,000 alone and probably more just in LA County. So anyway, like I said, Exhibit A, <laughs> first story in our justice, Justified segment today, armed motorist kills rock-throwing park and ride attacker. Now, this is actually kind of funny to me because the story's out of California. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I mean, so we were just talking about it. And clearly somebody in California had need to defend themselves. And what did Diane Feinstein say? Why would you want somebody to get close to you with a gun? Like, why would you want that? Well, because sometimes good people with guns stop bad people. Uh, and actually, not even necessarily bad people with guns. In this case, it was a bad guy with a really large rock. And so in Jerupa Valley, a motorist uh, was attacked by a man who hurled a large, it described it as a large boulder. That's what it says through the driver's side window toward the vehicle occupant. The man inside was armed with a handgun and fired several shots at the male, striking him. Uh, this quoting Officer Dan Oli Olivas. Uh, and the, the, there was also a, a second suspect there, a woman. So there was a man and a woman. The man threw a rock through the, through the window. The driver of the vehicle drew and fired at the man, striking him several times. Uh, the woman was not hit by the gunfire and fled the scene. The alleged rock thrower was taken to a hospital where he died a short time later. The motorist was not hurt, remained at the location, was detained without incident. Uh, he, is, he, as of the writing of this article, was still being interviewed by investigators. Uh, the woman was later found, the, woman, the female suspect, and detained for questioning as well. Uh, so, I mean, that, I, I just, I, I grabbed the story because I thought it was quite remarkable it's i've never had one like this where we have a guy throw a rock through a window at a motorist and then they use deadly force against him yeah and it, it definitely was an ongoing confrontation it says that they had approached him on the driver's side door and so it wasn't like you know just randomly as you're sitting there and all of a sudden oh someone threw a rock at me like there was there was some sort of confrontation there we don't know the details but it escalated to the point of this you know boulder being thrown and and you know the motorist responding with gunfire yeah, it, it, I read it as an attempted carjacking because 
I mean, it, obviously there could be a variety of motives, but what would most unarmed, unable to fight back people do when someone throws a large rock at you through the window and then it, you know proceeds to probably reach that window and try to pull? I mean, <laughs> pull you out of the car or whatever. Like you're probably gonna just be like, okay, fine, you know what? Take the car and you get out and away they go. Um, which if that was all it came to, fine. But this guy actually could have been seriously hurt by this large rock, and who knows if they were willing to do that. Who knows what else this man may have been willing to do. Um, it's interesting because this happened in California. And they're not, it's, I'm not sure what the context was. This guy was able to be in the vehicle uh, armed. I don't know if he was permitted. I don't know if he was in an area he was able to be permitted. I, I don't know. We have no details on that. It's just interesting, especially considering the story we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So. Next. Next story. Store clerk fired for defending himself with a pistol. And this happened right in our own backyard, Jacob. Colorado Springs. So essentially what you have is a overnight you know, shift worker at a convenience store, the Wester Convenience Store on Fillmore Street in Colorado Springs. And he's there. It's about 3 a.m. Two suspects come in, and they're armed. They point their weapons at him, demanding money. And he fights back successfully. He defends himself. They, they, they basically run, um, and, and it works out pretty well. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll add that, you know, the good guy here, he did get shot at, uh, it was, it was not okay. Um, you know, I mean, he, he took a bullet, so it was, it was, it was a scary thing. It could have been much worse. We could have a dead hero here instead of a man who successfully defended himself. Um, and he probably is going to have some, some lasting impacts of his injuries, but here's the point of the story. And that is that a few weeks after all this incident, uh, he receives a phone call from his manager saying he was fired for bringing a gun to work. And because of the shooting, the store says they are getting rid of the overnight shift and no longer needed him. Yeah. Now, let it be clear, in Colorado, uh, that's certainly legal for that employer to, to to fire him for a reason like that. Doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> and I think that's our point here today. But this is quite a story. Uh you know, the, the two suspects came in the store. Uh, they both have weapons. They're pointing them at his face. Uh, the, this man, he, he he's quoted as here. He's quoted here as saying, "Looking down the barrel of a gun that you know is wielded with hostile intent is frightening." Totally agree with him. And then he also says that they kept pointing their guns at my head. I stepped behind cover and drew my weapon. The suspects were frightened by the gun and went. When he tried to grab one of their weapons, he was shot in the left arm. So, uh, like I, I applaud him for doing what he did. Uh, certainly within his right, um, it certainly cost him his job, and I think that sucks and not cool. Um, wish I could say I could give him a job as compensation, but uh, you know, anyway, I'm sure he'll pick up one somewhere. Uh, Colorado is a pretty good market right now for finding jobs. Anyway, uh, but. You know, the thing I was intrigued by here, Jacob, is that he drew his gun against other guns, uh, but he did not fire it. Uh, he clearly drew it with like a, an intimidation factor, like, okay, look, I've got my gun and I will shoot you. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, but then he tried to, to, to grab one of their guns. I mean, I, I have to ask the question, you know, was he afraid to pull the trigger? And, and, and I think anybody's probably on some level afraid to pull a trigger. I don't want to pull a trigger, but you know, these guys are pointing a gun at you and his, I would say arguably his lack of action 
and as far as pulling the trigger, is probably what got him shot in the arm, especially when he tried to grab one of their weapons. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, armchair quarterback this one, you know, too much more. Just I, I find it interesting, um, and it's probably not always the best plan to draw your gun against an already drawn gun and then not actually do anything with it. Yeah. Uh, do you agree? I think I think that this individual probably could have used some better mental rehearsals, right? I mean, he probably could avoid taking taking gunfire uh, if he had been a little bit more mentally prepared for what had to take place here. Uh, so I, I agree. I mean, not knowing all the circumstances, but, you know, in hindsight, what could we learn from just reading the news story that we have? Yeah, that's probably a good takeaway is that, you know, we need to be prepared to do what's necessary. If that gun comes out, we must really be afraid for our lives and we need to be ready to take decisive action. Yeah, and that's that. that is really a key thing. I mean, if the gun's coming out because you have reason to fear for your life, well, he had that here. But if the gun's coming, coming out, I think you should only draw it if you're actually prepared to use it. So anyway, hey, we hope he gets reemployed here soon. Uh, sorry he got shot in the arm. That sucks. But we're glad he came out of it alive. Man's fatal shooting of neighbor ruled justified by state attorney's office. This from nwfdailynews.com. I think that's Northwest Florida dailynews.com. Uh, that's where this took place, uh, about an hour or so to the north and northeast of uh, Pensacola, Florida. Uh, a man shot his neighbor. Now, this is a, this is a complex oh, story. Oh, um, so, so let me try to break this down, and if I miss something, I'm sure he'll correct me, Jacob, but here's the deal. You have one man. His name is Don or Donald Hodges. His neighbor is Danny King. Danny King has a, a um, well, you know, if you listen to the actual uh, the phone call, the 911 call, which is in the story here, he, he talks about a girlfriend and a mother. So I'm not sure, I may be thinking Sarah King is the mother and Terry Smith is the girlfriend. It doesn't really matter. You have two women that are in this house where Danny King lives. He gets in an argument with the, the two women uh, apparently, it's such a, a violent argument that his neighbor hears all this, and he goes over. He confronts Danny King at the house as he is assaulting these two women, and and that's certainly what took place here. And by the way, he's making a mess of the house. He's throwing things around, smashing things. Um, the three of them end up arguing in Hodges, so the neighbor's front yard. So he hears all this. He goes out there. He steps in front of Smith, Terry Smith, one of the women. This is the, the, the neighbor Hodges steps in front of one of the women to intervene at which point. Oh, this is where it was, Jacob. This is why I got the beep button. At which point King said he was going to kick his <laughs> and I'll kill you. <laughs> That's what it says. How's that? Uh, I'm, I'm so glad I got to use the button today. Anyway, <laughs> um, King then approached Hodges, who struck King with his walking stick. So the neighbor Hodges has a walking stick. Uh, this this irate, you know, violent man. He's committing d- domestic violence. By the way, this is a pretty serious bad dude. Uh, he comes at the neighbor. The neighbor strikes him with his walking stick. They then both wrestle to the ground while on top of Hodges, King told him not to pull a pistol from his jacket. This is interesting because King knows that Hodges is armed and apparently Hodges was maybe getting ready to, to draw that weapon. 
Okay. At this point, the men disengage. It could have ended at that point. And frankly, it might have ended because King became aware that, oh, hey, this guy's got a gun and I'm going to die if I don't disengage from this fight. So they disengage. King goes back to his house. The problem is he returned shortly thereafter to his neighbors and ran at Hodges, the neighbor. Terry Smith, one of the women, said she then heard Hodges tell King, the neighbor tell the bad guy, don't do it, Danny, and back up, Danny, before Hodges shot King in the mouth and severed his spinal cord. When the deputies arrived, the neighbor Hodges was standing in his front yard. He told them he had three firearms, a 38 Special and two 22 caliber revolvers. Uh, King was pronounced dead. Uh, he was high on meth at the yeah, time. I, I also find it interesting that the the information from the court proceedings, the, as as well as you know the the decision from the journalist to report the following, the state attorney's office concluded Hodges was justified in killing King because King, who was eighty five pounds heavier and three inches taller than Hodges created a well-founded fear in Hodges that deadly force was necessary to prevent his imminent death or great bodily harm. And then, as you mentioned, methamphetamine was located in his blood and urine. So I thought it was interesting to note here that in this case, at least to some degree, they thought it relevant that the victim was 85 pounds lighter and three inches shorter than his attacker. It's relevant because that is what, you know, had something happened where charges were brought against Hodges, um, then, you know, that's relevant in that, that, that is his justification that I feared for my life. And by the way, he had, said he had a walking stick. I mean, so I suspect, I don't think we get any ages in this story at all, which I think is, I think that's unfortunate. It'd be interesting that, yeah, yeah, it is unusual, I think for, for true journalistic reporting, but, um, I suspect Hodges is not exactly a, a, a young spring chicken. Um, and I don't know about King, but it, it's apparent that based on King's size, Hodges was scared. He feared for either deadly force or great bodily harm coming to him. So, yeah, justified shooting. And uh, it, it's sad that crap like this has to happen. But guess what? What I find interesting, Jacob, is how often do we hear about laws that you know are supposed to... Uh, have a positive effect on reducing domestic violence, right? Um, or saving women's lives. That's something you often hear, you know, and they're, and they're, they're gun, they're, what they are in effect are gun control bills. I mean, like some of these laws, like in Washington state where a uh, high risk protection order can be put in place and you can have your guns taken away. Right. And, and the whole idea is that, well, this is going to save lives. Well, I find it interesting. Now that doesn't necessarily apply to this situation as far as, I don't know if King had weapons and if those could have or would have been taken away from him. But what I find interesting is that a gun was used in the defense of life that was, you know, originally involved a domestic violence situation. Yeah, absolutely. I just am really proud of Hodges, not just because Hodges, you know, you know, saved himself. But in this case, despite being at what would appear to be a physical disadvantage to King, he intervened when he didn't have to on behalf of these two women. And so, you know, this is a, this is a real life good guy. Yep. Final story. I've been saving the best for last. I, I think this is the best because we, we actually get some pretty good video 
with this incident. Uh, and this happened in Detroit, Michigan, where a concealed pistol license holder, that's what they call it there, a CPL license, uh, unloads an armed robber caught on video. This was on fox2detroit.com, and which I think is the same site where we initially had the report when, um, uh, oh shoot, what was his name that uh, we interviewed on the podcast that uh, drew the gun at the GM building? Mm, yeah, did, did Daryl? It might have been, yeah. Was it? Oh yeah, yeah, it was Paco. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, so on Fox2Detroit.com, uh, great video here that it shows the surveillance video of this uh, robbery attempt and the resulting shooting that takes place. And so the story goes: you have an attempted robbery that didn't go as planned. Uh, a the robber whose name is uh, Sanchez Quinn. Uh, he drew a gun on these two men outside of a, um, I think it was just a little store. And one of those two men, one of the those being robbed, had a concealed uh, CCW license. Uh, he drew his weapon and fired at, Mr. at Sanchez Quinn, at the suspect. Um, all of this was caught on high-definition surveillance video. Um, the suspect was, was hit and wounded. He was transported to the hospital. He is recovering from those wounds. Uh, but also interesting in this is that the one man that draws a gun and fires shots, uh, he does succeed, obviously, in, in stopping this robbery attempt. He does succeed in getting shots on the robber. But his buddy is also shot four times in the process. Apparently, it implies that that would be by, by the suspect, Sanchez Quinn, but I'll tell you what, man, I, I watched this video several times and this is, this is kind of scary <laughs> because I mean, they start shooting and the one, you know, the second guy, uh, the second buddy, he like runs in between them as shots are being fired. Uh, and I have to almost ask the question if his buddy wasn't hit by, by the, you know, the good Samaritan dude here. Yeah. It's hard to say from the video. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Who's getting shot by I mean, who? but it, yeah. What's what's and there's a couple other interesting things here. I mean, like here's a takeaway for you. Like if you're a CHL holder, like you should have not baggy pants that fall off. <laughs> our 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 good guy here, he draws his gun, I don't know from where, uh, turns, kind of parries away the bad guy's gun, starts shooting, and then he can't really get away because his his pants are falling off so he's got to grab with his support hand and pull his pants up uh so he can you know keep stay in the fight so anyway that was that was a funny little tidbit that's true as you watch the video you you can see as he backs up in a way his his shorts are coming down yeah but which maybe, is is kind of yeah maybe up. it's because you know without the, the the width displacement of the gun you know the pants were too loose I, I doubt it oh yeah of course that makes total sense gun came out and thus the pants came down. <laughs> so, so okay. I'm sorry. Maybe I shouldn't be making light of the situation, but um, it, yeah, it, it's 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 this is a scary incident where you know the ch the CPL holder they call it concealed, the concealed permit licensee. I'm guessing CPL. Uh, he he does a pretty good job defending himself, but you have this like innocent buddy who's just completely caught off guard. He's just like, whoa, what's going on? Guns are here and people are shooting at each other. And oh my gosh, you know, kind of thing. And, and as you mentioned, rather, he kind of runs between the, the gunfire and then kind of off out of, out of camera view. 
and uh, he was shot four times. Like at first, I watched the video and then I read the story, and I was shocked because in the video you don't really see that he's getting shot, let alone four times. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Yeah, you do see a little bit of body language from him at one point as he begins to make uh, his escape as he's running kind of to the upper left uh, of the video. Um, his hands, like he kind of looks to me, he's like, oh, geez, you know, like kind of like he's swatting like a bug away, you know, because I, I think he realized something, you know, hit him. And, it, you know, I think that was a little bit of a reaction there. But here's the thing. This, this is why I'm sharing this story and why this one really was, I was attracted to it. Because you never, if you are in a public place or if you're with friends or family, you, you don't always, you, you don't always know how they're going to react or where they're going to go, especially if they have very little preparation. And uh, we, we talk so often about uh, being mindful of your surroundings, being mindful of uh, what you're trying to shoot at and anything either beyond or in front front of like in between you and that intended target in this case you have uh the cpl holder the the permittee who draws and begins firing and he begins backpedaling you know away from the threat um, but his buddy doesn't really know what to do or where to go he's still kind of in close proximity to the bad guy so he's trying to also get away but in the process puts himself directly in between uh, where the shots are being fired. And uh, that's a that's a scary place. And it's just a good reminder, I think, for all of us to know that this is what can happen in an altercation like this. Um, and you've really got to be well-disciplined and well-trained to understand uh, how you're going to handle yourself and to use judicial uh, finger control because, you know, if my buddy starts coming in front of me, I I, I don't want to shoot him. So, if, you know, fingers got to come off the trigger and I've got to make that decision of when I can and when I cannot shoot. Um, and in this case, it was very, uh, it was a very difficult situation to be in for no matter who you are. Um, yeah, so, and like I said, I, we assume, I guess, that his buddy was shot by the bad guy the four times, but there, there's a point where, like I said, they're going. He's going in between, and it looks to me like there's still shots being fired, and it's like, ooh, that's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, scary stuff. Yeah. So, but uh, a cool story. I mean, cool. I think because I like when we actually get video and we can see these types of events play out, um, and uh, you know, it, it adds a little more realism to it, and you can see how it's how it how it goes. By the way, speaking of the Perry move, okay, so the uh, good guy that draws the gun, uh, you see he immediately puts it, puts his left hand up, okay, right from the get go. Once he sees that the gun is out, and this guy is attempting to rob them. His left hand goes up in a you know classic, oh oh, don't hurt me, you know gesture sort of thing, right? And I imagine he's a little bit off camera at this point, but I imagine as he's doing that, he is what is his right hand doing? His shooting hand. He is getting ready and he is drawing that gun. And then right as he goes for the move, as he pulls that gun out, he then parries the bad guy's gun down and away. And it buys him just enough. Because he actually ends up running. He kind of comes towards the bad guy and then runs past him. And then as he gets past him, he turns around and begins engaging him. Yeah. Uh, really fascinating stuff. Um, you know, there's probably a little bit more effective ways that you can... Uh, parry that gun in fact you could he actually probably could have had the opportunity to grab that man's wrist and even shoot him right there at close you know uh, at close range and disarmed him and ended it right there and hopefully nobody would have gotten hurt other than the bad guy 
but instead he parried, ran, drew, shot, you know, and it is what it is. And he lives, they, they all live to fight another day. That's the good news here. Bad guy will go to jail. Uh, the good guys uh, live to see another day. And that's what we like to see at the end of the good, day. Good thoughts about that, Riley. So that wraps up our stories for today. Um, really awesome stories, I think. I think we had an exceptional collection of stories to pull from today. Uh, there's there's weeks where it's like, it's the classic home invasion, you know, and it's like a three paragraph story, you know. Guy breaks in, he gets shot, you know. And, and, and by the way, not to make light or say that those are, are dumb things or that we shouldn't talk about them. But we had some really awesome stories to share today and a lot of things I think that we could learn from this. And and go back, by the way, and remember where we started this episode. The episode started telling about the man whose gun fell out of his holster and he went to grab it and he accidentally shot himself. Um, It's really sad. It's really unfortunate. Um, It's really too bad that that happened. Um, but, But it's it's a great reminder and a great lesson that's learned from that. And so we had lots of good lessons today. Today's uh, episode was besides being sponsored by Andrew Branca's law of self-defense. It's also sponsored and brought to you by guardian nation. Guardian nation. Many of you should know is our premier membership intended for self-defense and uh, concealed carry minded individuals that wish to be, law-abiding guardians in our country here. We have many of you. We're so thankful to the many hundreds of you that have now joined the program and have access now to the Shooter Skill Library, Guardian Nation Live broadcasts, as well as the archive of past recordings. We just had last week the founder and president of USCCA, that is Tim Schmidt. Uh, He was our Guardian Nation Live uh, guest last week. We had him on a podcast a couple episodes ago. Lots of great stuff, uh, things learned from Mr. Schmidt. Uh, He talked about the great things they've got going on at USCCA that benefit concealed carriers and benefit gun owners. you know, you could check them out, but more importantly, go see the awesome live Q&A session we had with them in the archive of recordings at concealedcarry.com for those of you that are Guardian Nation members. And if you're not, go check out guardiannation.com. And another great benefit is that you'll get a quarterly box shipped with awesome gear to you each quarter, every three months. And November is another one of those box shipping months. So, guardianation.com, guardianation.com. Make it happen. <laughs> sports of yep, Sports of Field is our other sponsor today. Uh, we are such big fans of Sports of Field and we sell their safes and we love selling their safes, love using their safes. I've got one uh, right in my vehicle that gets used on a daily basis. I go, I drop my kids off at school. Um, it's right, you know, in in an appropriate place in my in my vehicle. It's cable locked to to the frame of the seat it's not going anywhere at least in a hurry and the reason it gets used is because i get out of the vehicle and i take my kids up to the school Um, i do that that's a personal self-defense and family defense uh choice i walk up there because if something were to happen at the school at that moment where they're outside vulnerable uh i want to be able to take action problem is i can't go on school property with my gun i have to leave it in my vehicle so every day my sports of field safe gets used where I secure it in that safe in my vehicle. Uh, and I take my kids to school, you know, so sports field safe, great line of quick access, safe products, but they also have a full line of full size rifle safes. 
that are made available through our website at concealedcarry.com forward slash sports of field, S-P-O-R-T-S-A-F-I-E-L-D. Shipping and delivery is easy, even ordering online. Trust this 100-year-old brand. Yeah, the same guys have been making the Sports of Field magazine since 1887, and every safe purchase comes with a free one-year subscription. That's a pretty cool bonus. Go check it out at concealedcarry.com forward slash sports field. I mentioned earlier, Jacob, that I would uh, uh, mention or bring up uh, the upcoming Law of Self-Defense seminars, in-person seminars across the country coming up uh, uh, actually just this last weekend. They had one in Colorado. So coming up now, next one is October 21st in Central City, Iowa. Then there's November 4th, Delaware, Ohio. And November, uh, let's see, no, excuse me, February 3rd, this is further out in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So in-person live seminars from Law of Self-Defense, Andrew Branca, just giving you an idea of the calendar. So cool stuff. Anyway, that's, I think, all we got for today. Jacob, anything else you want to throw out there? Train right, train often, train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. How was that? Did I do a good job? Did I say it like you would say it? <laughs> No, but you said it the way Jacob would say it. <laughs> I was trying to like use a cool voice. So I dig it. I dig it. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.